Hard to believe we're in Lesson 36, the study of Romans, and um, we're kind of in, in coming up on the middle of chapter 11. You know, and I realized last week it was a rather long and hard lesson. It had a lot of information, and I was trying to get us to a place where we could kind of understand what Paul was up against. So today I'm going to spend a good part of the day in review of last week. I want to restate some of the themes in kind of a simpler fashion with less references for those who have may have been a little confused. And then after listening to the review, if you were confused, you can go back and listen to last week and it'll all be clear to you. And all the references will be right there. Sometimes it's kind of hard to fit some of these themes and concepts into 30 minutes. And I find uh, that many times people get much more out of the review than they did out of the original lesson, so... But I tried to show the purpose of the letter, and I did that by contrasting the purpose of the letter to the Romans with the purpose of the letter to the Galatians. And I did that because Christians have looked at the book of Romans as a continuation and a more complete lesson of the things that were taught in Galatians, and that Paul was addressing the same Judaizing issue. But nothing could be further from the truth. And what I tried to show is that Galatians and Romans have This one thing in common, they both warn against those who would destroy the gospel for their own selfish purposes. However, the method of the destruction and the people causing the problem and the problem itself could not be more different. In Galatia, he's battling those Jewish Jewish believers and non-believers who would have the Gentiles convert to being Jewish following the same traditions that had been established by the rabbis after the liberation of Israel from Antiochus. You need to understand that before that, there was no formal conversion process. This rabbinic conversion process included the obvious separation from idol worship, because the word of God demands that we separate ourselves from those things. God demands that we do not worship other gods, that we do not even worship him in the same ways as uh, the heathens do other gods. Even eat the foods that was offered to those idols. He prohibits that. And this would remain part of being grafted in through faith in Yeshua as well because our God is a jealous God. Next came adherence to the Torah, and not just to the Torah, but also to the traditions established by the rabbis regarding keeping of the Torah. Paul has described that in the book as works of the law. And if you are going to be part of the Jewish people, it was, they reasoned that you had to know how to live as a Jew. The good news demands that Gentiles keep Torah as well, but not by the traditions of the Jewish people, but by the leading of the spirit of Yeshua, the word made flesh and dwell among us. And then the third and fourth steps were circumcision and immersion. And Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, summarizes the letter for us in chapter 6. He, he, he always summarizes at the end of the, at the, end of the book. But he, he says this in verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid be, being persecuted for the cross of Messiah. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. So ask yourself this. 
Why would Paul and the apostles be so against this type of conversion? I mean, why would they care if Gentiles had their foreskin removed? It's no skin off of them, right? <laughs> well, first, <laughs> I had to do that. <laughs> I didn't even put it in my notes, but I couldn't resist. (laughs) Right? Well, first, it was unnecessary because God had shown he'd already accepted the non-Jews by pouring out his spirit upon them before they were circumcised. Second, if it was unnecessary because God had already accepted them, why lay this burden upon them? Because it would hinder the gospel from going out to the ends of the earth. And third, and closely related to that, the gospel was to be to the Jew first and then the nations, to the ends of the earth. Not to the Jew and to everyone that could cut with a flint knife. And fourth, it's important that we put our confidence in Yeshua alone, not in ethnicity. So this undue burden was contrary to the gospel, which was to the Jew first and then to the nations. That was the problem in Galatia. However, that's not the problem in Rome. In 49 Common Era, Emperor Claudius evicted the Jewish people from Rome. And that eviction lasted five years. So at the writing of this letter to the Romans, there were very few Jewish people in Rome. And as you can imagine, with no Jewish people in five years and new Romans coming into the congregation through the witnessing of Yeshua by Roman believers, there was a relaxing of the principles found in the Torah and those that were established by the apostles. Judaizing wasn't the problem in Rome. Judaizing wasn't the problem because there were no Jews to Judaize. They had only begun to return as Paul writes this letter, and more likely, they were walking on eggshells as they returned because they had been removed. No, the problem in Rome was the Roman church there had been Romanizing the gospel. The Jewish people who were returning were finding that the synagogues that they'd left behind were far different now. And you can imagine, I could imagine anyway, that the Romans were not at all happy with these Jewish non-believers in the Messiah returning. After all, they were a pain in the neck with all their Torah observances. They don't eat like we do. They don't dress like we do. They question everything we do. They're a pain in the neck, and now they're back. Not only that, the government evicted them. Because they were such troublemakers in the first place, now they're coming back. Who needs this kind of trouble? Right? You see, in the absence of the Jewish believers and non-believers, there had been a Romanizing of the church that remains to this very day. Look at the church. They don't observe Passover, but Easter. Where did they get Easter from? The worship of the goddess Ishtar. And they even keep the same name, the Roman goddess's name. Christmas, even a cursory look at the Bible will tell you Yeshua wasn't born in December. But in Rome, the god Mithras 
was celebrated at this time of the year. The Sabbath had always been on the seventh day in Judaism and according to scriptures, but not in Rome. The Roman church changed it to the day of the sun, Sunday. Now these things didn't become church edicts until much later, around the fourth century, but what we're seeing here in Rome now are the seeds of this Romanizing of the church. Not just moving away from things that are Jewish, but moving things away from things that are biblical. Listen, Paul tries to get these folks back on track with love and sensitivity to the Jewish people and obedience to the gospel, but he failed. Remember, think about it. This letter is being written about 55 to 57 common era. Paul doesn't even go to Rome until 61 to 63 common era. And when he does go, he's a prisoner. By 67 common era, he's dead. The temple is destroyed in 70 common era, and Rome, with all of its anti-Semitism, begins to become the seat of the faith. By the time we get to 135 common era and the Bar Kokhba rebellion, it's a done deal. Rome is the new head of the church, and we start to read all these anti-Semitic writings from the church fathers at that time. So we can conclude that Paul had little success in changing the direction of the Romans. His letter didn't work, at least in the long term. You see, here's the problem. Paul summarizes the problem for us in chapter 16 of Romans. In verse 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, which means stumblings, contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them, for such men are slaves not of their Lord Yeshua, but of their own appetites. You see, there are those in this congregation who are causing others to stumble. In other words, they're causing them to miss the gospel, to miss the Messiah Yeshua. Because when Paul says stumble, that's what he means. You stumble by missing Messiah Yeshua in the good news. So understand there's something that they're doing that Paul says is contrary to what they've been taught that's causing men to miss the Messiah and the good news. And the other fact that we can glean from this is that they're doing it because of their own appetites, or we could say their own desire for food. That's what an appetite is. So remember, we asked ourselves, what do we know that these folks have been taught that has to do with food, and there's only one decision rendered about food that we can find of in Scripture that went out to every corner of the world. And it was in Acts chapter 15, which reads this way. Verse 19 says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but we write them to abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from strangled things, and from blood. This is what new Gentiles coming into the congregation had to do so that they'd be able to worship with the Jewish people, believers and non-believers. Now, if you look at these things, they hardly make sense to us, do they? What has this got to do with me, besides maybe fornication? What does this have to do with me? Well, not much, because these things aren't really an issue for us. But context is everything. 
And the context here is the good news is going out to the nations, and the nations are full of paganism and idol worship. The other thing we need to remember is that the, as the good news went out, these Romans were worshiping with Jewish believers and non-believers in the same synagogues. And if these folks were going to be accepted in the communities, they had to show that they had separated themselves from the worship of idols for the sake of the worship of the one God. So they must abstain from things contaminated by idols, or we could say meat offered to idols. Part of the temple ritual among the Romans and the Greek societies was to sacrifice animals and then sit down to a meal. So to show that they had left the idol worship behind, of course, they couldn't eat meat offered to an idol. Not just that, not was it just a good sign that you'd left idol worship, but the Torah forbids it. It says fornication. Another part of the temple worship in these places was revelry with temple prostitutes. And so if you were still doing those things, it showed that you hadn't left the idol worship behind. Plus, you know, the Torah forbids it. All of these things have to do with idol worship. Blood, the drinking of blood, another aspect of, the, of this idol worship. But they all have to do with idol worship. So we might assume that there were Romans who may not have left all their idol worship behind. Remember, these Romans worship many, many gods. We might, and they might be coming in thinking, well, Jesus is just another one. Put him right up there with Ishtar and Mithra. Sounds a lot like Mithra. So we might think that they didn't leave their idol worship behind, which would have been the norm for Rome. If they had left it behind, at least it appeared that they hadn't because they were bringing meat that was questionable to the community meals. And if we look at Romans 14, we can see this. Romans 14, verses 2 and 3 says, One person has faith that he might eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat should not judge the one who eats, for God has accepted them. So what does it mean here? Who's weak in faith? And who's eating vegetables? And who's eating meat? Well, put ourselves back in Rome for a minute. And if you were in a Roman synagogue, if we were in a synagogue with Jewish people, and we were all sitting down to a community meal and some Roman came in with a leg of lamb, and you were uncertain where he had obtained it, and you asked him, where did you get this from? And he said, well, there's a meat market down here by the pagan temple for Ishtar, and I just went in there and they had that. What would you do? Simple. You'd head for the vegetables. Quick. Right? Because the Torah forbids. At least that's what I'd do. It says... The one whose faith is weak. Who would be the one with the weak faith? Well, Paul's already covered that. He said he covered it in the first eight chapters. Those who don't believe in Messiah are weak in the faith. So here's what's happening. The Romans have been taught not to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, but in the absence of the Jewish teachers, they become lax in their observance of the commands that the disciples had given. So it appeared to many that they had not separated themselves from idol worship, 
And because of that, they're causing the Jewish people to stumble. We'll go about, we'll talk about how they're causing them to stumble later. You see, the problem in Rome and Galatia was the same for the apostle to the nations. It was a serious problem. In Galatians, the gospel is being destroyed through Judaizing. In Rome, the gospel is being destroyed through Romanizing and Hellenizing. So that's the overview of what we covered last week. Kind of an overview in a shortened form. In an easy to understand, I hope. Now through the rest of the book, I'm going to prove all of this to you. Amen? We're going to prove these assumptions that we made, hopped around and made last week. Paul opens chapter 11 with a continuance of the defense of the Jewish people who have failed to accept Messiah Yeshua. And let's just read it real quick. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. And what was the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And if by grace it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. And so Paul goes to the prophets and he shows that God had a remnant of Jewish people that had now bowed their knee to Baal. In other words, they would not bowed to another God, but they had lived lives that were separated to God. Paul, in showing that every generation had a remnant of people in order to keep, he's doing it in order to, uh, to show that God's keeping his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And he does it from this verse about the life of Elijah. And he's telling them that this remnant is chosen by God and it's by God's grace. You know, there are other ways he could have shown that there's a remnant, right? Other ways he could have shown that. We could go through scripture and find devout people in every generation. But Paul masterfully uses this passage. Why? Well, he says because they didn't bow their knee to Baal. And the problem in Rome, what was the problem in Rome that I stated? That they may not have separated themselves from idol worship. You see how this is a perfect passage for what he's trying to do. And he says there's a remnant chosen by grace, not by works. In other words, God has chosen this remnant by grace. And he said in verse 2, whom he foreknew that they're chosen by the grace of God. And so if it's by grace then it doesn't make any difference if they've rejected Messiah as Paul once had. It doesn't make any difference if they've been persecuted the believers as Paul once had. Or even if they have been violent persecutors of the believers as Paul once had because God has chosen them by grace. In the same way he foreknew you, though you were an idol worshiper, they're chosen by grace. Verse 7 
of 11 says, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not. Down to this very day, as David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and, their, and bend their backs forever. And so Paul says here that there's a nation, that Israel as a nation has not obtained the grace, but the remnant of the nation of Israel, those who were chosen had, the rest were hardened. And as a proof text, he quotes Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, very loosely, but he quotes it still, which says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, that's, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. And I say loose because you notice he, he does it a little different. He says, He has not given you eyes to see, or ears to hear, in Romans. But, but what we see here is the essence, it's the same. The wording's not quite the same, but it's the essence. You get the essence. But he's saying this to show that this is not some recent event, that there's been a remnant in Israel. There's been a remnant in Israel ever since the wilderness. God has had a remnant in Israel. And then he quotes Psalm 69. And sadly, folks, the verses that Paul uses here that show that God has a remnant of Jewish people Many in the church have taken out of context and used them to show that God is through with the Jewish people. And now the church has replaced the Jewish people. Not at all what Paul is saying. He's saying that there's always been a remnant chosen by grace. There's something else that he's inferring here by saying there's a remnant and by using himself as an example. He's also inferring that we don't know who the remnant is. And so we need to be careful that we're not found hindering one of those who have been chosen. The one who's giving you the hardest time about the gospel may be one of the very ones God has chosen. Think about it. Who would have ever guessed? Paul, Shaul of Tarsus, was one of the chosen if you'd asked the followers of Yeshua at the time, certainly not. Certainly not Ananias. Let's read here in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire of J the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he's praying there, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's a little worried, right? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And sons of Israel. You see, the point is, you can't arbitrarily write anybody off. I mean, if Paul was one of the elect, what makes you think that today one of the hardcore Jews for Judaism aren't one of the chosen as well? 
right? If Yeshua could knock Shaul off his horse, don't you think he could do the same today for one of these folks? You see, we have to treat everyone with the same kindness of God because we don't know. And that's exactly what Shaul is trying to tell the Romans. Later in chapter 11, when he says in verse 19, he says, You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. Proving again, you know, we stand by grace. And God is able to extend grace to whom he will, and he's able to harden who he will. Because we all stand by grace because no man can boast. And Paul is telling these people, if you get in the way of the gospel, if you become an enemy of the gospel, as he's going to call the Jewish people a little later in chapter 11, he's saying, you're going to get cut off as well. How do you become an enemy of the gospel? Is it just that you don't accept or believe in Yeshua? That just makes you an idiot. But you become an enemy of the gospel by getting in the way of God saving his people. Then you become an enemy. If it's in the case of Galatia, you become an enemy by making it difficult for Gentiles through your traditions. And if you're in Rome, you become an enemy by making it difficult for Jewish people through your arrogance, your anti-Semitism, and you're not keeping the commands of God. Amen? Now we get to the crux of the problem for Paul in verse 11. He says this. Again I ask, did they stumble, stumble so far to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Wow, what a plan, huh? One more time, he tells us, Israel has not fallen so far as to recover. But it was the plan of God all along to make Israel envious through the salvation of the Gentiles. Why on earth would God make Israel envious with Gentiles? Was it his reasoning behind such a thing? Well, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy once more, we can, we can figure it out. Paul quoted this already, so you know it was on his mind. We're going to read it again. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21, but we're going to start up at 18 for context. It says, You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by their sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what was, is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation with no understanding. You see, this is the judgment of God. And what is it? Mita, Keneged, Mita. Measure for measure. The context is Israel's disobedience and the punishment that will come upon them for their disobedience. So God says, you made me jealous 
by worshiping gods of the nations, and he adds that we're no gods because there is only one God. God is telling Israel, you looked at the nations around you and you fell into the worship of their God, so here's the deal, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take those same people and reveal myself to them, and when you see my blessings come upon them, and when you see them following my righteous decrees and my laws that I gave you, and enjoying the spiritual blessings that I gave you, you're going to be envious, and then you'll turn back to me. You see, that's the healing salve that God says will heal Israel's disobedience. That was his plan all along. That's the plan of God. Paul knew this. And God, in as many words, told Ananias the same thing. Remember, we just read it. We'll read it again. In verse 15, it says, Acts 9, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. When the, we call the Apostle Paul the Apostle to the nations, but he was, and he was, but the gospel being preached to the nation was God's plan to bring Israel back, to incite Israel to envy. In a roundabout way, his preaching to the Gentiles is also preaching to Israel. You see, but the problem for Paul is while he sees the plan of God here, which I might add is a mystery, he also sees a fly in the ointment. There are a lot of flies in the ointment. You see, the fly is the Romans haven't separated themselves from the pagans, or at least it would appear that they hadn't. They're seemingly eating meat offered to idols, and they're certainly treating Israel with arrogance and not obeying the righteous decrees and laws God said would make Israel jealous. So if they haven't separated themselves from idol worship and they're not keeping the righteous decrees of God and walking in the blessings of God, how are they going to make Israel jealous? They're not. You see, the Jewish people, here's another measure for measure. The Jewish people were to make the nations envious. How? Because they had the commands of God. They had the worship of God. We read this a few weeks ago. Let's read it again. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. See, I taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of them. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and your understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way the Lord your God is near us whenever we pray to him? What other nation is so great to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today? Israel was to make the nations envious. But Israel, instead of walking in the righteous decrees and laws, as we said, they worship the gods of the nations. And so God said, I'll make you jealous by a nation that has no understanding. How will that be? Well, when they start living by the precepts and the decrees of God, the very thing that Israel was to do, 
they'll become envious. The fly in the ointment is, they're not doing this in Rome. They're not doing these things. The problem for us is as, the problem for us today is as, as went Rome, went the rest of the church. And so the church has never done these things. And the Jewish people were never made envious. Instead of the church followed Rome. And they became anti-Semitic, filled with replacement theology. They threw out the righteous precepts of the Torah. They traded their statues of Zeus for statues of Jesus and statues of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I'm not talking about the group. The seeds of all of this twisting of the gospel is what we're reading here in the book of Rome. What you need to see is that Paul, while he may have been success, had some success in the short term, really failed in this mission to the Romans in the long term. Because they were to make Israel envious. Instead, as history shows, they alienated them further through anti-Semitism, And as went the Romans, so went the rest of the church. By the time we get to the 4th century, those believers in the east of Rome who kept the Torah, who kept the festivals, who kept the Sabbath, had vanished from history. That's a lesson for us. Amen? We'll talk more about it next week.